Welcome, everyone. Welcome, Smyrna Campus. We love you guys. Everybody connecting with us online, we're glad that you've connected with us today. Of course, this weekend, tomorrow especially, uh, we celebrate the life and legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we want to take a moment of prayer right now. Our country needs to be reminded of the dream of bringing people together in unity, obviously uh, correcting injustices and bringing everyone to the table as that video clip was talking about. So let's all pray together right now. Father, we thank you that as, as your church, we are in a unique position to be able to speak unity to the world because we know that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and it's in him that we come together in true unity. We thank you for the legacy of Dr. King and the great progress that's been made, but we know the dream and the work continues. We pray that we would lead the way in setting an example of what it means to, to love all people, to be able to, to have the same value for every human being that you have. Help us to see everyone through your eyes. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. There were uh, three mothers that were sitting on a park bench and they were all talking about how much their sons love them. Uh, mothers like to brag about that if they've got a son that they think really loves them and takes good care of them. And, and so the first mother says, you know the uh, Chagall painting hanging in my living room? My son Arnold gave me that for my 75th birthday. What a good son. He loves his mother so much. Next mother said, well, you call that love? You know the Mercedes I got for Mother's Day? That's from my son, Bernie. What a great son he is. The third mom said, well, that's nothing. You know my son, Stanley? He sees a psychoanalyst on Park Avenue five times a week, and all he talks about is me. <laughs> We are in a series called Best Boss Ever, and we started with understanding how Jesus has the qualifications that would uh, cause us as his followers to make sure we put him in that position of being our boss, so to speak, of ruling over us as Lord and Savior, Messiah of our lives. And when he is over everything, then we started last week looking at the different areas of our lives that he ought to be the boss over. We looked at how last week he should be the boss of our attitudes. And this week we're talking about him being the boss of our relationships. Because not all really relationships are good, are they? And we all probably have some relationship struggles that we're either having right now or that we have had in the past. And we're, we're still maybe feeling the effects of some bad relationships that we've gone through. And when I talk about relationships, yeah, I do mean husband, wife, parent, child, all of, you know, friend to friend, all of those relationships. But, but today we're going to bring it down to a broader, more uh, consensus, consensus, I can't even say the word, <laughs> consensus of all the relationships that we have and how God gives us in his word some teaching and an example of how we need to relate to each other if we're going to truly represent Christ well as his followers. Uh, we're going to be looking today in Luke chapter 10. If you would turn there with me, Luke chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 25. This is sometimes, it leads into what is sometimes called the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
And, and even when I say the word Samaritan, even people not in the church have a concept of this idea of being a good Samaritan. Uh, we use that terminology even in the culture outside the church today, that somebody who helped somebody, somebody who, who saw somebody maybe broken down on the side of the road and stopped up, they were being a good Samaritan. And it comes from this story in Scripture. Now, here's the thing. Jesus never calls this story a parable. Uh, which is okay. It's all right to still use the term parable. A parable is an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. But I think one of the things we need to consider is this might actually have been a true story. Uh, This may have actually happened, and Jesus is recounting this story as a factual account of what took place. Not just a story for illustration, but, but a story of something that happened to illustrate what he's teaching us here. But I want to begin with the question that was asked that led into the story that we're going to be looking at today. The question that led to a question that led to another question that led to a story. It's all of that leading into this story. Pick up with verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So an expert in the law in that time would have been not, not like an attorney like we have today in our culture exactly. It would have been someone who was an expert in the law of God as Jesus is telling this. Now, when you talk about the law of God in their culture at that time, they had uh, books of the law that they read from and studied and, and learned from. And those books of the law are often called the Torah. And it's five books of the law in the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy make up the Torah or the books of the law. Now, you don't have a lot of the law in Genesis. It's introduced there. Some of it is introduced there. But it goes on into more detail in those other books following that. And so this person asking the question would have been an expert student, very knowledgeable in those writings that were known as the Torah, as those books of law. He would have known all the details about everything written in those books. And remember when we talk about the law of God, we're not just talking about the Ten Commandments. We're talking about all of the laws talked about in all of those books make up that, those volumes of law that God gave to his people. And and this guy is said to be an expert, which means, all right, I I know what it says. I mean, an expert usually (laughs) has great knowledge and insight into what something is that he's an expert in. And he asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, notice he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, under the law, they, they connected this idea of doing with eternal life, right? You have to do the right things under the law to have eternal life. Now, we know that that we can never do all those things perfectly. We've got the the extra insight of the new covenant and of the coming of Christ and the price that he paid, but they're living under the law still right now, and their thinking under the law is, I have to do all these things just right to have eternal life. So I want to be sure I understand what it is I need to do so that I don't miss having eternal life. I got to do it right, okay? So Jesus, as he often did, answers a question with a what? A question, okay? So he says this, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? 
See, sometimes we, and somebody's asking us a question, what are we doing? We're already thinking ahead of how we're going to respond without really finding out where the person is coming from. Jesus is taking the time to find out where the guy's coming from. Where's his head at on this, right? How's he thinking about it? Because Jesus knew, this guy knew every little detail of the law. So with that knowledge, Jesus is asking, well, with all the knowledge you've got of the law, what is it you think the law says about having eternal life? How do you read it? So he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Does that sound like a good answer? Yeah, that's a great answer. Remember when Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, what did he say? These two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the greatest commandments, the most important things. In fact, all the law and the prophets rest on those two. So it's a big deal. This guy gets it right as far as the details, the technical details of what the law says is really important for them to do. And so Jesus answers in verse 28. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Okay. Now, at first, the lawyer is probably thinking, we can't read too much into it. We don't really know all of his mind, but maybe he's thinking, phew, good, I got the right answer. Right? I mean, I like it when somebody tells me, yeah, you're right about that, Randy. Oh, Pastor Randy, you're right about that. Doesn't it make you feel good when somebody tells you you're right about something? And he's probably feeling pretty good about that, but then it hits him. Well, now, wait a minute. That could be interpreted different ways. I mean, people could think differently about fulfilling those laws and what it means to fulfill those laws. Particularly part of it was on his mind. He said, do this and you will live. But in verse 29, he wanted to do what? Justify himself. So he asked Jesus this next question. Remember the first question, what must I do to have eternal life? Here's his next question. Well, if I'm supposed to do that, who is my neighbor? And he asked the question, not so much for information, but for what? To do what? Justify himself. He wants to justify himself. He wants to be able to feel good about his chances that he has eternal life, that he is going to have eternal life. And so he wants clear definition on what that part of the law means, to, to love your neighbor. Uh, how is that lived out, Jesus? What, what, what parameters are put on that by God on what it means to love your neighbor? And the parameters he's thinking about is who is in the category neighbor and who's not. That's what he's wanting clarification on. Which indicates that in his mind... He thinks there's some people I have to love like this. I want to be sure I love them that way. But there's some that aren't in that category. So I don't have to love them like this. He's trying to separate out categories here of people and, and make sure he's loving the right ones because more than anything else, he wants to have what? Eternal life. He wants to be justified he thinks in the eyes of God that he can have eternal life. And, and so in order to be justified in the eyes of God, who, who am I supposed to love and who is it not important for me to love as my neighbor? 
And I don't think any of us in the church today would, would really say, at least out loud, we think that way. But sometimes we live out that attitude. All of us. We're in a culture that puts greater value on some people than others based on power, influence, position, race sometimes, uh, uh, all different categories where we place people at certain places of, of importance or value or how deserving they are of us showing them love and compassion in our lives. We don't have to say it out loud, but we're doing it all the time. So this is a really good reminder for all of us, this teaching that Jesus is doing here about what the law means when he says, love your neighbor. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Great question. I, uh, I'm like a lot of you. I, I love Fred Rogers and his show. And I love the song, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And would you be my neighbor? You know, I love, I love that concept. And it sounds so sweet and so good. But the idea is we get to pick and choose who's going to be your neighbor, right? But what Jesus is going to teach here by telling this story is, yes, you get to choose, but if you want it to be right with God, there's, there's something you need to know about making that choice, okay? So here's what he says, the story that he tells in response to the question beginning in verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Great story, isn't it? I want you to get the picture because... One reason we believe this could very well be something that actually happened that he's recounting is this was not an uncommon thing that happened in that area on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. That road was treacherous in a lot of ways. Uh, first of all, it was very steep. Uh, it was about 20 miles. And if you're going from Jerusalem to Jericho, you're going east. But he said going down to Jericho, that doesn't mean south. It means Jerusalem was built up on a hill. Okay. And even though you're going east, you're going down in elevation all the way down to Jericho. In fact, the drop in elevation is about 3,500 feet drop in elevation. So if you're coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, you're going hard uphill all the way. But if you're going back down, you're going steep downhill all the way. But here's the thing, too. You think going downhill would be easy, but if you've done any trail walking or running, then you know that going downhill can be treacherous too, especially on a narrow path like this one was in many parts of it, and crooked and narrow path. And you have to carry your supplies with you because you're going on a 20-mile trip here. You've got to carry stuff with you. Now, about halfway down this road at that time, we have records of it, there was an inn there. Uh, so this story, again, every detail makes sense that it could actually happen 
because there's an inn halfway down that road where people would often stay who didn't want to make the whole trip in one day because it's a long way to go carrying your supplies, especially in the heat and the dryness of that area and how treacherous the road was and how dangerous it was for another reason. There were many places it was a rocky hillside you were traveling down all the way down until you got to the very bottom and there were plenty of places for robbers to hide out behind those little out uh, croppings of rocks and cliffs and things. And people were often robbed on that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Probably a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is a lot of trade took place between Jerusalem and Jericho, which meant people were taking goods a lot of times that people would want to rob, or they had just sold goods and had the money from selling those goods on the trip back. And so it made for a perfect setup for thieves to attack someone on that road. So as Jesus is telling the story, uh, the story makes sense to the people that are hearing it. They can picture it. They, maybe a lot of them have been on that same exact road doing the exact same thing. Maybe they had even been scared a few times. They might be robbed. Maybe they were even sometimes staying at that inn that he talks about where this guy took care of the one who had been beaten up and took him to that inn and paid for him to be cared for. So it would really resonate with them in every detail. But one detail of the story resonated more than any other part. It was the part where the good Jewish religious people, the priest and the Levi, don't help the guy. But the guy who does, what's he? He's a what? Oh, a Samaritan. And we can say Samaritan today with no animosity, but when they said Samaritan, it was a bad taste in their mouths. That was, they were, Jews hated Samaritans, but it worked the other way too. Samaritans hated the Jews. It worked both ways. And so for the Samaritan, he's telling this to a Jewish audience, and for Samaritan to, to be the hero of the story really stirred them up as they heard the story being told. Why would he be the hero? Wouldn't a Jewish guy be a hero? Wouldn't somebody like us be the hero? And remember, he's asking the question, what must I do to be having eternal life? And I've got to love my neighbor. Well, then who is my neighbor? And in this story already, I'm sure this lawyer is beginning to think, uh-oh, I know where Jesus is going with this. He's turning this back on me a little bit. He's going to make me think of something I didn't really want to think of. That I, I, He's including some people here that I didn't really want to include in this command to love my neighbor. I've seen this breakdown over the years for many, many years. I don't know who originated it, but I really like it. Of three categories of thought that you see in the characters in this story. The first category of thought is this. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. Who do you think in the story had that attitude? The robbers. What's yours is mine, I'll take it. That's what robbers do. They see something you have. They want it for sometimes a lot of different reasons, but they want it for themselves, and they don't mind taking it, even if it hurts you for them to take it. And we've lived with that in every culture in the history of humans being on the earth. There have been people who felt like it was okay for them. They convinced themselves that it was all right for them to go take something from somebody else that doesn't belong to them and, and to steal it from them. 
And sometimes to hurt them in the process, sometimes to kill them in the process to get what they want. And I hope and pray none of us in here have, have harmed anybody to take something that we want intentionally with that mindset. That, but there is that mindset out there. And it's becoming, I think, more and more the mindset of a lot of people that it's not fair for anybody to have something I don't have. I mean, that's almost being pushed on us today as a mindset. It's not fair for you to have more than me, better than me, newer than me. And in order to make it fair, we have to take from you and give to me. That's the only way it'll be fair now is to take from you and give it to me. Now, I understand some of the philosophy behind that and how sometimes people have wrongly gained some things. I understand all of that. But the idea can really permeate and, and it can even get you to the place of anger and resentment that anybody has something you don't have. And you just think life is so unfair and it robs you of all joy and all contentment with what you do have to live like that. And sometimes it can lead to justifying taking unkind actions toward people to get what you want. And we may not think we do that, but sometimes we do it without thinking that's what we're doing. We can do it with cheating somebody in a business deal, right? We're taking something from somebody else that way. If we cheated them intentionally, we know we're cheating them and we do the deal anyway just to get what we want. We're harming them to get what we want. Or we, we say that, uh, well, they didn't treat me right on that deal, so I'm not paying what I said I was going to pay them. Right? You're, you're hurting them because you want what you want, even though you had agreed up front to pay that. There's so many different ways we could do that, where we put ourselves first. I didn't know this about you when we got married, so forget this, Right? We're not going to stay married. We're not going to stay committed to it. I want what I want, not what you want. So there, there's so many different examples of how we bring that mindset into how we treat other people. What's yours is mine. I'll take it. But there's another mindset illustrated in the story, too, and that is what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. What's mine is mine, so I'm just going to keep mine. Now, who in the story do you think illustrates that? The priest the Levite. They're traveling down this same road and they come across this guy that's injured on the side of the road. He's been robbed. He's been stripped of his clothing. He's been beaten up and he's laying there. And remember, this road almost all the way through is very narrow. So you can't go down this road without seeing this guy laying there. Now, each one of them, the priest and the Levite, walked by, it says, on the other side of the road. That doesn't mean but a few feet, probably. Okay, when you say on the other side of the road. It's not like they're walking 100 yards from this guy. They're, they're, they're just a few feet from him when they go by. They, they see him. They know he's there. They can see the condition that he's in. Okay. But somehow in their minds, they've decided... I don't need to stop and help this guy. Now, now, we all know there's a lot of things that can go through our heads when we see somebody like that, and, and they probably were thinking some of those things. Well, this could be a trap. The robbers could still be around, right? So, so if I stop and help, I might get robbed or beat up too. 
It, it might also be, well, the guy's not really hurt. He's thinking, and he's the one that's going to attack me or rob me. It could also be something as simple as this. They were religious leaders. The priest served in the temple or in the tabernacles at that time. The Levite did as well. They, they were the two. The priest was the highest authority in the temple, uh, the high priest and then the priest. And then that was the Levites who served under them and took care of things at the temple or, or the tabernacle where they served. And, and they may be thinking, I'm late. I'm supposed to preach today. Right? I got to get on over there. I'm the teacher for the service today, and, and I want to serve God. I want to honor God, so i got to get on over there and do my godly work, right? I, I, I mean, what I'm doing, I'm doing for the Lord, right? So it's important work, and I need to go do that. And the Levite may be thinking, oh, no, I'm running late, and I didn't get everything set up at the tabernacle yet. i got to get it all or at the temple today, or I didn't get everything set up at, at the synagogue today, so i got to go get it all ready, get it set up, so, so the priest will have what he needs, and... And so you could justify, well, I'm really in a hurry, and I'm sure somebody else, right, is going to come along. It won't be long, probably, before somebody else comes along that can help this guy. And that's true. Somebody else did come along that helped the guy. So that's, that's not even a bad thought, necessarily, that somebody else might come along and help. But what we often do, all of us, is we, we begin to check off boxes of justifying doing what we want to do to not have to give up anything that we want and that we want to do, right? Uh, and, and we can do it in any and every area of our lives. We could check off some boxes that give us a better feeling about not doing something that, that we might think uh, I should do because what's mine's mine. I just want to hold on to what's mine, especially connected to like the church service in the kingdom of God. We can, we can justify things in our minds. I'm not going to give money to that church. I read about a church that abused that, that, that misused some money, and somebody ran off with some of the money. And so I'm not giving to a church ever again. You know, uh, I'll take care. I'll, I'll decide what happens with my money, right? So you're not even thinking it's God's money, and now it's your money, right? So you're going to control what you do with it instead of giving it to the Lord the way he says. But you want to justify not giving it, so you come up with these reasons not to give it. Or, yeah, I would serve in the children's ministries, but, you know, I, I, uh, I think I could be better used somewhere else. I don't know where it is yet, and I'm not serving anywhere else, but, but that's probably not it. So well, I'm not going to serve there right now. Or, you know, I know they need some help at the branch, but my schedule is so busy right now. Man, if I get, if I get freed up, if I get some free time in my schedule, I, I might go over there sometime and help out. But right now, I just can't work it in. My time is mine and too valuable for me to give it up to go do something else. Hey, I'm human just like you. When I get home and see my recliner there, you know what I want to do? Sit down. Pop the thing up for my feet. Text my wife in the kitchen. Say, could you bring me uh, something to drink? You know? <laughs> yeah, you bet I don't try that one, right? Yeah. I'm not doing that. We didn't stay married as long as we have with me doing stuff like that, right? Yeah. Now we all, though, think of these things, right, where it's my time. I need my time. You know, it's me time. 
And that's not all evil. We do need some self-care time. That's not all bad. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever do anything like that. I'm saying this attitude can permeate what's mine is mine, and I'm going to keep it the way I want it. I'm not going to make any changes here for anybody else. But there's a third attitude seen in this story, and that's what's mine is yours, and I'll share it. And that's the Samaritan, of course. What's mine is yours. I will share it. Now, it doesn't mean, and Scripture never teaches us to do this, that you can't ever have anything nice and you can't ever buy anything for yourself and you can't ever have any me time or anything. That's not what any of that means, but it does mean that you understand the value of giving up something and, and making some sacrifices to share with and make a difference for somebody else. In fact, so many of you do that all the time. And you could all stand up here and give a testimony about how that's what gives your life the greatest meaning and pleasure and fulfillment when you do it that way. Everybody that's been doing that in the room today, listening online today, you know that's when you get the most fulfillment in your life. It's when you're doing something like that. And there's so many opportunities, so many ways to do it. It doesn't have to be like officially with a position at the church. So you don't have to wait till you get something like that. We're all representing Christ all the time. So we can all look for those opportunities. And they're there every day all the time for us to, to share ourselves with others. When I say share ourselves, is it money sometimes? Yeah, sometimes it is. But it's not always money. It's your time. It's your talent. It's your compassion. You share that with the people around you that need it. Friends, if we could just stop and, and think about it, and, and we all get so busy we don't, but, but if we could do a better job with this, everybody we are around, and I know with COVID, we may be not around as many people as we were with all the stuff going on with that, but we still have opportunity to connect with people and be around people in certain ways. Everybody's got a story out there. Everybody. Everybody's got their own pool of tears that they've cried or are crying right now. Everybody's had their own hurts, their own struggles, their own losses, everybody. Everybody out there needs somebody to be that good neighbor to them. Everybody. Even the person you don't like very well right now. You don't like their attitude. You don't like their actions. Sometimes the reason they are the way they are is because of their story, what they've gone through to get to where they are. And instead of saying what's mine is mine, I don't think you deserve for me to give that up for you. Maybe we could be more aware of how we could be the light to them. Jesus, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with verse 14, he said this to those who would follow him. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify you. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? Glorify your Father in heaven. You see, there's this other category where we say, yeah, I'll share with you as long as I get thanks and praise and recognition for it. Right. I don't mind. 
I don't mind serving at the church, but make sure you, you cater to me because I'm serving or giving and you cater to me because I give. Or I don't mind serving God in the community, but I want to make sure I get credit somehow. I get recognized for it by the place or the organization or wherever it is that I'm serving. I want to be sure I get the credit for it. But we're supposed to shine our light so that they give glory to who? God. The glory goes to him, not to us. And, and that's a different, you all know the difference in the attitude and the approach to serving or giving to get back or just simply to point people to God. You know there's a difference in how you do that. And Jesus is teaching us that we need to let our light shine in a way that causes people to see God more clearly, to see God's love, God's care for them, God's value of them as we represent him and how we serve others. So that leads to the third and final thing today, and that is the challenge that's put there. The challenge comes in verse 36 and 37. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? All right, he's told this whole story. The guy's probably pretty upset that the Samaritan is the hero. Then he says to the guy, who do you think was the neighbor to the guy that was beat up and robbed? Now, this guy's in a spot now. There's only one right answer. Everybody knows the right answer. It's clear who the hero of the story was. It's clear who was a neighbor to the guy in need. So he has no option but to say, well, obviously the guy who helped him, who had mercy on him, that's, you notice he didn't even say Samaritan. Did you catch that? Now, I don't know if that's part of the prejudice coming out, but chances are he didn't even want to say the word that the Samaritan was the neighbor the hero. That's how entrenched this was, this prejudice was that they had toward each other. So he says, well, it was, the, it was the one who helped them. Of course it was. Had mercy on them. That was the neighbor. And then the, Jesus told him, well, you wanted to know what you needed to do, so go and do. Likewise. That's how you need to be living your life. Mr. Lawyer, you asked the question. I've given you the answer. But the thing about having the knowledge is just having the knowledge doesn't mean you're doing what you need to do. You know the right answer, but are you doing it? Are you living like that? Are you being a neighbor to the people around you that need you to show mercy to them? I want to close with three words that you could use to describe the actions that he's calling for that the Samaritan took. The first word is compassion. Some translations say when he saw him, he took pity on him. And the word translated pity is a, is a hard We think of pity sometimes in a neg as a negative thing. And I don't want you, you know, having pity over for me or anything, all right? But, but this is a word that doesn't mean anything negative at all. It means deep felt compassion toward the person who was hurting. He didn't know this person. He, uh, in the story, most likely this person was Jewish and this is a Samaritan, Right? So he still chose to have compassion. And, and here's the thing about compassion. You have to decide it. You have to choose it. But you also, if you keep doing this like you need to, you truly begin to feel it. It's not just intellectual. It is emotional, too. You actually feel compassion toward those people. I'm convinced that's one of the greatest evidences of our maturity and our faith it's when we can learn to be compassionate toward others that aren't like us and don't necessarily treat us well. 
but still be compassionate toward them. That's maturing in the faith. It really is. Because that's one of the hardest things for us to do in the flesh, I think, is to develop that kind of compassion toward others. Here's the thing about compassion and how it relates to relationships. Every relationship is made better by the attitude of compassion. Every relationship is made better by the attitude and the, and the, the, the living out and the action of compassion toward the person. I know when you're dating and getting married, you don't think you're going to have to have show compassion to the other person because they're perfect, right? They're just perfect. They don't do anything wrong. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, it's so funny, you know, looking back on it, how we, we get so caught up in the emotional love feeling of things that we don't see the reality that that person's going to have flaws and shortcomings and sometimes they're going to mess up at some things or fail at some things. And sometimes they're actually going to say something that might hurt your feelings. Not that my wife ever does that to me, but I'm sure I've probably done that to her once in a while. So when those things happen, whether it's friendships or parent-child relationships or marriage relationships, any relationships, it's going to require deep felt compassion for that relationship to last it is but here's the point of this story I think we all would say okay I'll try to be more compassionate to my wife or to my friend because we have you know a natural inclination to be with those people and like those people but what about those other people that aren't in our category already of people that we consider our neighbors can we bring them into the neighbor fold too? Can we show compassion to them? That's the point of the story is the Samaritan lived it out in being a neighbor to this man. The second is action. Because remember, compassion without action never accomplishes what compassion is supposed to accomplish. Just to feel the emotion without acting on it is not enough. You have to actually step out of your comfort zone and express action of compassion toward those people. Here's what I know for sure. Studies have borne it out for years. By far, more people have been brought to Christ by the compassionate action of Christians than by any crusade or revival meetings or anything like that that's ever happened. You know how more people are brought to Christ? Through relationships with people who already follow Christ. That's how more people are brought to Christ than any other way. Not by good preaching at a church service on Sunday morning, though that adds, that's a help, that's, a, that's something that's good. We should want that. Not by a good life group, you know, where we, we got our life group and we're tight and we're together. Well, that's great. But who else are you bringing to Christ besides having that fun time with your own life group, right? Who else are you developing relationships with outside of that, that might be used by God to help them find their way to Jesus outside of that group. We have to take the action of choosing to love and be compassionate toward other people and live it out in our actions with our time and our energy. And that leads to the third word, and that's sacrifice. Compassion always, when it's lived out in action, calls for sacrifice, always. Always. 
If you're going to be compassionate to someone, it's going to cost you something. Whether it's somebody like your husband or wife or whether it's somebody like your, your child or somebody totally you don't know at all. If you're going to show compassion to them, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you some time to do it. You're going to have to spend some time with that person to, to live out some compassion toward them. It may cost you some money because they may need some help. And sometimes money can be used to provide the specific things that they need some help with. But it's not always money. Sometimes it's it's knowledge that you have that you can share with them. Sometimes it's helping them connect with some other friends because they don't have that in their lives and they need that. I mean, there's so many different ways you live it out, but it costs you something to take the action that God is calling for us to take. We have to make some sacrifices. Instead of sitting down in the recliner every time I get home, maybe I could eat some dinner and then go serve somewhere or go help somebody out that has a need that night or, or maybe on my day off instead of only using it for the stuff I wanted to do occasionally I could use that time to to go help someone with a project that they're working on and nobody's there to help them but somebody could they could use your knowledge or your experience or your help there's just so many ways I could use some time maybe to to go mentor a child at a school and read to them at the school because they need people to come do it whatever it is and friends, listen to me. We don't have to start some program at the church for us to do that. We should never have to do it that way. It just should be natural about how we live as Christ followers. That we're just doing it without having to develop some program. It's not about another program. It's about learning to develop the compassion that Jesus is teaching us in this story toward people around us every day that need us to be those compassionate people to them. So many times when people outside the church think of the church, they don't really think much about us being compassionate people. And for some degree, we brought that on ourselves. We haven't been very compassionate out there like we are in here. Sometimes people say, oh, Lakeshore is such a friendly church. And I agree with that. If somebody comes here, I think the feedback we usually get was they were friendly. They were a friendly church. People, you know, spoke to me. Or every now and then we get somebody that feels like they didn't. But most of the time we get really good response from people when they visit. And that's great. But not everybody's going to come here as their first step. They're out there. How are we treating them out there? What is our personality with them out there? What is our interaction with them out there? Are we willing to develop relationships with people not like us who aren't here yet? And are we going to do that relationship in such a way that it leads them to bring glory to the Father? This weekend is the weekend we honor Dr. King, as I said. And one of the favorite quotes from Dr. King, he's so many good ones out there. One of my favorite ones is this. Life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? What are you doing for others? That's kind of what Jesus is asking this guy, isn't it? Not just the others that you pick and choose that would be your preferences. But what are you doing for others, period? Everybody out there. Are you making a positive impact on those people? Let me close with this verse. 1 John 3 and verse 18, it says this. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Let's pray. Father, it may be 
that there's someone today who understands that when it comes to loving you, they can't separate that from loving others. When it comes to loving our neighbor, as the command says clearly, we can't limit it just to the people we would handpick to be our neighbor. Help us to be a neighbor to those around us. Help us to show the mercy. Help us to be willing to make the sacrifice. Help us to be willing to give up some of ourselves for the good of others. Help us, Father, to live out the teachings of Jesus because the knowledge without the action it comes far short of having the impact in the world that you want us to have. May we, with your help, by the presence of your spirit and the teaching of your word, may we mature to the point that we truly feel compassion toward those around us and that we act on it when we have the opportunity. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.